Welcome to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. My name is Andrea Wilson-Woods, and I'm the CEO and co-founder of Cancer U. Join me each week as I interview cancer patients, caregivers, survivors, and providers about their cancer journeys. You're listening to Cancer Youth Thrivers, where real people share true stories. Kim Sorrell is an entrepreneur, director of a nonprofit organization, author, speaker, and lover of all people. Four months after receiving a breast cancer diagnosis, her husband was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, passing away just six weeks later. Kim began questioning the true meaning of love, and so she dedicated a full year to figure it out. The things that she discovered about love are unlike anything you've heard before, and she chronicled her experience in her book, Love Is. Great title. Love it. Kim, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story. Andrea, it is a pleasure to be here with you. Thank you for having me. I was so moved by the first two lines of your bio. And as I mentioned before, I hit record. And so I'd like to just dive right in. Let's start with you. How did this breast cancer diagnosis come about? How long ago was it? And did you have any symptoms? Well, you know, it's kind of crazy. I was one of those people who uh, fought having mammograms because I thought the healthcare system was just looking for more money. And so I, I didn't fair. That's that. fair. Totally fair. <laughs> and after I had my first one and they put you in that machine and they make pancakes out of your breasts and it's so painful, I thought, why would I ever want to do this to myself again? And there was no breast cancer in my family. Not a good reason for me to go but I was in my forties and supposed to be going every year. And I went to uh, get a physical from my doctor and she convinced me to go have a mammogram. It had been a couple of years and I fought her, but I reluctantly went and I went to the clinic and uh, put on the little front opening cape that they give you. (laughs) And then got called back by these two lovely women who brought me into a room to teach me how to do self exams and talk about everything. And, And I said to them, you don't have to say a word to me. You'll be wasting my time and yours. I think this is a scam. I don't know why I'm here. I'm doing this to my doctor. I know, poor things. I know. But I'm just like, you know, I know you're doing what you think is right. I just don't even want to be here. But then I had the mammogram and you go wait in the room again. And then they said, yeah, now you have to have an ultrasound. And so then I had the ultrasound kicking and screaming again. And then they decided a biopsy. And then a couple of days later, uh, Friday afternoon at three o'clock in the afternoon, I was in the bathroom. I had a couple of grandbabies in the bathtub and my phone rang and it was the doctor's office and saying, blah, blah, blah. You have breast cancer. We'll call you on Tuesday, blah, blah, whatever. And um, hung up the phone thinking I can't call anybody. I can't call a doctor and ask questions. It's Friday afternoon and I've got these babies in the tub and I called my husband. He was at work and I called him. I was bawling at that point and couldn't hardly get words out. And somehow he appeared before me. It seemed like just moments later and did exactly, exactly the right thing. And so for anyone listening, this is what you do. He just grabbed onto me and held me. And we both just cried. 
And that is exactly what I needed. No words, nothing else needed to be done. I just needed to be held. And uh, so, you know, praise the Lord. He knew what to do. And um, so that was the beginning of my journey with breast cancer. I didn't get the big lifetime moment where the doctor calls you into the into his office, you know, and it's so dramatic and and then tells you face to face and, you know, you face it. I didn't get that. I got the phone call on a Friday afternoon, which is not the way to get the news really. But I know a lot of people who've gotten the news that way. It's, it's yeah, it's so interesting too, because I could think it's just a personal choice with a doctor. You know, some doctors would insist you come in in person so they could answer your questions right then and there. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's an interesting way to get the news for sure. So then I went to the bookstore and I found everything to be either very medical or very depressing. And I thought, well, what does it really feel like? Like, you know, are there choices to make? Like, I don't even know what I'm facing, what I'm going to be going through. And uh, so I started writing um, kind of as a way to update family and friends. I'm going to the doctor tomorrow, you know, instead of calling everybody. But uh, it was much more than just, I'm going to the doctor tomorrow. My writings were, it was talking about the reality of it and how I was feeling and what I was going through. And, uh, and so then, um, before I knew it, 5,000 people were reading my, my writings. And then four months later, my husband was diagnosed with cancer. It was, and, and, you know, with the whole breast cancer thing, there were so many things I didn't know. And so many things I think you don't know. And there are different kinds of breast cancer and there's different choices to be made. And, and, um, I didn't know any of that. And so, uh, I have this book now that talks about at least my journey. So at least there's something out there that, that talks about the reality of the journey, but, and, you know, you got to kind of laugh along the way, right? I mean, there's stuff that happens like, like one of the choices, Andrea, that I had to make was, I had to have a mastectomy. Um, That's what I was going to ask. Like, but yeah, what what was the what was the treatment recommended? What stage and what type of breast cancer did you have? Yeah, so I had um, it was uh, stage one. It was all contained in a in a very large tumor on one side, okay. and um, it was um, inductal um, uh, breast cancer and. Um, with hormone receptors. So because of that, then uh, I needed to have a mastectomy, but had the choice of one side or two because it was too large for a lumpectomy. Mm. And uh, so we were sitting around the dinner table one night and I was talking to my kids about it and saying, what am I going to do? And one of my sons said, well, mom, would you get new siding on just half the house? And I'm like, oh, what have your kids said that? Yes. I said, well, good wow. point, son. That's a good point. I guess I would get new signing on the whole house. So, you know, that made that decision a little bit easier, I guess. So I did get uh, both removed. And uh, so that was another, you know, lifetime moment that I thought I was going to have. But I started reconstruction right away. I had the best doctors. They were absolutely amazing and would recommend them to anybody in my area um, they were fabulous and my plastic surgeon was great. And, but I expected that moment, you know, that moment on a lifetime movie where you stand in front of the mirror, you're all by yourself. And for the first time you open up your 
top, you know, looking in the mirror and have that moment. And I, so I did it because I'm all about lifetime movies. So I'm standing <laughs> in front of the mirror and I, you know, slowly open my top, you know, trying to muster up all the drama possible. And my doctor did such a good job. I was not, I, I had something there. I, I wasn't left with nothing. So, you know, because implants got put in right away, you know, things happened. And so, so I, you didn't need tissue expanders or anything like I that? I used it, yeah, it's, but the expanders were in. Oh, so got it wasn't it. like got it. it was just nothing, right? So anyway, yeah, so- um, Chemotherapy, radiation, anything like that? Nope, I didn't have to have any of that. The, the margins, they felt pretty comfortable with. Um, it, it didn't have any lymph node involvement. Uh, so no radiation, no chemo. Um, I did have to have a complete hysterectomy because of the- the hormone receptors. Um, and when I did, which was the best surgery I've ever had in my life to not have a period anymore as a woman is a gift. Amen, sister. <laughs> <laughs> so I was all about that. And apparently when you have a complete hysterectomy, you can either get thrown into menopause or skip it altogether. And you know, like within 24 hours, because if you are a wreck then you are going through menopause. And if you don't feel any different, then you're skipping it. And I skipped it. So no hot flashes, no anything. So that okay, was- really now, nice Okay, now I just have to cut you <laughs> off because every woman in America is going to hate you. Yes, um, yes. Um, yeah. Well, now, yeah. And not only that, but there's gotta be good parts about it, right? Like there's gotta be something That's good. That comes about. That's fair. So that was good. And the fact that because I have no breast tissue and they are all- um, implant, they will forever stand at attention. So that is another blessing, I guess, that comes from it. <laughs> there, uh, my doctor was way too generous. I had a male doctor. I told him to pick the size. That was a mistake that I made um, because he was <laughs> a little bit too generous. I, I call them Blue Cross and Blue Shield, and um, they they are they were bigger than you would have wanted. Bigger, bigger than I would have wanted. Yes, yeah. But I survived it all. They did find bladder cancer when they did the uh, hysterectomy. Whoa, whoa, seriously? Yeah, I know. Okay, Kim, you're just like running through this, like, like. Okay, so back up, back up. Whoa, 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 whoa. That's a big deal. Did you have any symptoms of bladder cancer? Any any bladder issues or no? No, no. Came as a complete surprise. Um, and. Uh, bladder cancer is its own animal, right? It's, sure, it's uh, totally unrelated. And so to, to have both is kind of an odd thing, but there's different kinds of bladder cancer, just like there's different kinds of breast cancer. And um, the kind that I have is very manageable. And I just, for the rest of my life, I have to go uh, annually for a bladder biopsy. And sometimes they find a little something and they take it out and sometimes they don't and all is well. And so it really is very manageable and just fine. So wow, interesting. And how, how long ago did all this happen? 2008, September of 2008 is when I got the phone call. Talk about fortuitous timing in terms of just what was going on in the world. Oh my right, God. right. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting time in the world. Wow. So tell us, first of all, what was your husband's name? Steve. Steve. Mm -hmm. So talk to us about Steve and, and how he got this diagnosis and did he have any symptoms? 
right after I was diagnosed, he started having stomach issues. And um, my diagnosis, my phone call was September 5. And by the end of September, he was at the doctor to talk about his stomach issues. And the doctor said, oh, you're just nerved up because of what Kim's going through. And so take some Rolaids, take some Tums, you know, you'll be fine. So November, a couple months later, things were not going any better for him. And he went to the doctor again and he said, I really think it's just because, you know, of what Kim's going through. And so it's still the same recommendation, but to put your mind at ease, I'll send you to a gastro guy. Good. So, but the gastro appointment wasn't until January, which that's a long time in the United States to wait for a specialist, but you know, that's when the, when it was. And it just so happened that the very next day I was having my hysterectomy and my kind of breast cancer, colon cancer uh, can go hand in hand with it. And so I was having a colonoscopy at the same time. So I was doing the real fun Miralax clean out the day before. So fun. Yes. Yes. And so get a wink of sleep. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Exactly. But, you know, you feel pretty clean afterwards, I guess. But uh, so I couldn't go with him to the doctor and I was the mouth, you know, I would be the one asking the questions and insisting that something happened. And uh, so he went by himself and I waited for him to get home. And he told me he didn't see the doctor. He saw a PA and the PA told him to take some Tums. I was so mad. I was so angry because it's like, do something for this guy. He's gone to the doctor three times for goodness sake. He's not making something up or it's not so simple as, indigestion or, you know, nervous stomach or whatever you want to call it. And so the next day I had surgery, it was a Friday. And the following Friday, I was still in pajamas and bad watching Grey's Anatomy reruns, you know, and, um, and uh, healing from the hysterectomy, but then also the bladder surgery at the same time, which made it a little more healing. And, um, And I woke up that morning, my husband was awake and and he just said, guy, I just, this pain, you know, I just didn't sleep that well last night. And I said, that's it. You're going to the ER because at least in the emergency room, they'll run a test. They'll do something. So he drove himself to the ER and my husband, my tall, dark, handsome, wonderful, most fabulous guy in the world husband was a great rule follower. And at that time, you could not have your cell phone on in the emergency room. And so he did not. And so as I'm trying to call him, I'm not getting anywhere because his phone is off. Finally, I got a phone call and he said, so I guess they're going to keep me overnight. And I'm like, keep you overnight. They don't keep anybody overnight. What do you mean keep you overnight? And so I threw on like real people clothes and hopped in my car and in my Vicodin induced state drove like a bad out of hell to get to the hospital. Oh no. And I was not too far from the hospital and my phone rang again. And he said, so I guess there's a spot on my liver. And so I was a mess. I just started bawling. I don't really even remember parking. I do remember going from my car into the hospital, holding all parts of my body that because everything was sores, I was still going through everything with expanders and then the hysterectomy. And so I was hanging on to parts of my body, running into the hospital. They told me where he was and he was behind a curtain. And I 
ran over there and I whipped the curtain back and he was just sitting on the edge of the bed like nothing was happening. And I'm bawling. And he said, listen, I am not going to invite you out anymore if this is the way you're going to behave. And I said, listen, buddy, you are not allowed to be funny right now. You're not allowed to be funny. But uh, so it took a few days. Um, so that was Friday. And of course, things on weekends run a little small, slower in hospitals. Did, I'm going to ask, do they keep them overnight because they saw something on a scan they did and yeah. they thought we got it? move forward. Okay. Got it. They got to figure out what's going on. And right. so they ran blood work the next day, uh, Sunday morning. And I was reading of all books. If anybody's read this book, the last lecture, mm. I was yeah. reading at the Randy time. Pausch. Pausch. Yeah. Yes. And, uh, and I was reading like his numbers, the CA, the CA 125, the cancer markers, you know, and what his numbers were like. And so Sunday morning, the doctor came in and uh, said he's never seen numbers like this before. The numbers were absolutely outrageous, way higher than in the last lecture, like ridiculous numbers. And, and I said, well, then your lab made a mistake if, if you've never seen numbers like this before. And he said, no, no, the lab didn't make a mistake. I said, oh, come on. You're going to tell me your lab never makes a mistake? Like, you know, run it again. Like you, something's got to be wrong. Like I was in such denial that anything could be bad. And and he said, no, 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 it's fine. It's fine. You know, whatever. And this I'm curious yeah. because I experienced something similar. Did they give you sort of what this is the normal range and this is how far out it is that he, did he tell you that? Yes. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And, and they were absolutely outrageous. The numbers were ridiculous. I can't remember exactly, but it was like if 50 was normal, it was at 10,000, you know I mean? It was like, so, so far out of range. And, um, uh, my husband's father had been diagnosed, uh, two years, almost to the day earlier, um, with pancreatic cancer. And so I said to the doctor, I said, well, you know, what, his dad was diagnosed, you know, whatever. And, and he said, no, 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 this isn't pancreatic cancer. And I said, oh, good. Cause I know what a horrible diagnosis that is. So I was right. relieved to hear him say that. And so they, on Sunday made my husband do the clean out to do a colonoscopy and to have a liver biopsy on the Monday morning. Did they sus suspect colon cancer that had metastasized? He was, yeah, that's what the doctor was real sure that was colon cancer that had metastasized. And so when we were back there with him and he's sleeping after the procedures and I'm in the room with him and the doctor came in with pictures and, and, um, and he said, well, it's not what I thought it was going to be. You, you can see that there are tumors, but it's something coming from the outside in, not something inside his colon. And it's at the such and such part of his colon. And I don't know one end of a colon from another. And so, so I said, well, where is that anywhere near his pancreas? And the doctor yelled at me and he said, will you get off pancreatic cancer? This is not pancreatic cancer. Why do you want your husband to have pancreatic cancer? And I'm like, wait, I, I don't. I want you to tell me it's not that. I right. don't because I know what that diagnosis is. I don't want it to be that. I mean, don't yell at me. Like I, I don't want it to be that. And he's, well, it's not what this is. And you know, whatever. Well, two days later, we found out that it was pancreatic cancer. 
So who told you that? Couldn't have been the same doctor, right? No, no. We went to, it was a, an oncologist that okay. we went to um, that right now, a totally separate doctor. And uh, yeah. And actually, as my husband was checking out of the hospital, I was checking in because I ended up with this bad kidney infection because I'm sleeping in the hospital bed with him instead of home recuperating, you know, whatever. I mean, it was just such a fun time in life. And I had to be wheeled over to my husband's oncology, first oncology appointment. And it was crazy. But um, but we knew what that diagnosis went, what it, what it meant, you know, yeah. what pancreatic cancer comes down to and that there's was not- Was your father-in-law still alive at this point? No, my father-in-law was uh, diagnosed, like I said, two years almost to the day before my yeah. husband and passed away six weeks later. And my husband passed away six weeks later, almost to the day. They both? Both? Yeah. Six weeks. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. And we were told a year, maybe more than a year. My husband was 51. I was 47. And he was healthy. He was lean and, and uh, you know, took great supplements and, you know, was a healthy guy. And they said, you're young and healthy. And and they told us, too, that my father-in-law's cancer likely had absolutely nothing to do with my husband's because my father-in-law was so much older when he received his diagnosis that it was more coincidence, which I don't know what the world would say now, the cancer yeah. world, but uh, interesting thing to hear. Um, but, yeah, so they, they thought he'd live, you know, what, whatever. Uh, we did try chemo. Um, he had one round of chemo and his numbers never returned to a point to be able to have another round. And so our prayer right from the beginning was, um, you know, Lord heal him like you did the lame and the blind and, you know, take this horrible disease away or the greatest healing of all heaven, but don't let him suffer. Please don't let him suffer. And that's, what we prayed and that's what we got. Um, and you have kids. I have kids. I have five how kids. Old, how old were your kids? What was the age range when your husband got this diagnosis? My youngest one was 23, I think. So they were all adults. And, uh, and you know, we had some grandbabies too at the time. And so uh, one of my sons was in the Navy um, at the time. So he wasn't home home with us and the other ones three three of the other were around um most of the time when one was living in the dominican republic so um huge support of course my kids were a big support but yeah six weeks was fast and unexpected and um but but also a blessing um at the same time because uh when things happen for him um, we had a great six weeks. We watched movies. We watched Cash Cab every day. And, <laughs> and, what channel is that on for people who want to Google this? I, I've forgotten. What channel is Cash Cab on? I is I don't TV? even remember, but it was it was good. I remember we liked funny. it. You know, it was yeah. fun to watch. The host was a hoot, and uh, so you know, we played some cards. We just hung out. We had a great great time together. I great friends who were so supportive and family that was so supportive and there 
for us all the time. And, um, and so we really had this great time. And then uh, at the very end, like it was a Saturday night and he just was getting more painful and we had hospice involved from the beginning and had an incredible experience with them. The doctor, Dr. Mulder, who was the, uh, the guy taking care of all of his symptoms um, was absolutely incredible. Uh, with palliative care, just a genius at it, teaches at Harvard. And I mean, just for us to get this guy, it was just remarkable. And and uh, so uh, I called on a Saturday night, called the hospice nurse and she came and um, upped his morphine a bit to make him comfortable. And then woke up on Sunday morning and uh, he was in pain. And it was really besides Saturday night, the first time that he'd really been in pain. And it was pretty extreme. I called the hospice nurse and she came right away. And and then she's on the phone ordering a hospital bed and, you know, whatever other equipment she was ordering. And I'm saying, oh, my gosh, should I be calling my kids? You know, like what's going on? Oh, no, no, no. You've got plenty of time. You've got lots of time. Don't worry. Don't worry. Don't worry. And my husband was sitting on the side of the bed because laying down hurt because this, you know, his abdomen was in so much pain. And so I was behind him, holding onto him from behind. And, and um, he was just kind of rocking, you know, I was just holding him so he wouldn't fall off the bed. And, and uh, she's saying, no, you know, don't, don't worry about it. You've got time. And I just felt his pain and I just, whispered in his ear and I said, baby, it's, it's okay. Just go. Yeah. And he did. It was yeah. just that fast. And I'm grateful that he didn't linger, you know, how so many people have to go through that and what a hard time that can be, um, that it was, uh, such mercy that he went so quickly and didn't suffer like so many people do. And it's so hard on everybody to see your loved one suffer and to for them to suffer, you know, to watch people go through that. And so uh, it was just that fast. It just happened that fast. I want to share a story with you, if you don't mind. The reason I'm tearing up is because it was similar with my sister. It lasted much longer in terms of her actual cancer journey, but um, she took a real turn for the worse very, very suddenly. And we came home and like, they didn't make, think she was going to make it through the night, but she did. She woke up, she shocked everybody. We were immediately on hospice and we went home and she, she was on oxygen and fluids and that was it. And the first full day we had the hospice nurse my, my sister was really fighting hard and the hospice nurse and she was incredible too. I mean, I don't know how you do hospice for children. I don't know how you do it. And, and she said her brain is hundred percent intact. So she's just fighting it. So you just, you just got to soothe her. Like think of her when she was a baby, how did you soothe her? And that's really what it was. Like I was soothing her every time she would get up and just start wrestling. And, um, and she would try to talk, but it was really hard for her because the tumor, there were so many tumors in her at that point in her lungs and her lungs were gurgling. And it, it was, it was just really, really hard. And that night I said something very similar to her. I, I, because they said she could, 
last for weeks. She could be around for months. It's really at this point, it's entirely up to her. And I knew that if I asked her to hang on, she would. Mm-hmm. And I knew if I told her if it was okay that she could go, she would. And so that's what I did. Same thing you did. And the next morning, the hospice nurse comes in and she had just left us like, I don't know, nine o'clock the night before, right? She comes in and she goes, what happened? <laughs> because the blood pressure was down. She was relaxed. She had tears flowing down her cheek. Mm-hmm. Um, she just, she seemed a hundred percent at peace. And mm-hmm. the hospice nurse was like, okay, so I, it's probably gonna, she's probably gonna go today. And that's exactly what happened. She, wow. Yeah. And she was at home in her bed, you know, surrounded by people who loved her, not hooked up to anything other than IV fluids. And yeah. Wow. Wow. And those aren't easy words to say. They are not. <laughs> no, they are not. No. I mean, you just want so badly for things to change, yeah. for the cancer to just disappear and life to be like it was before cancer. And So what do you think is more difficult, Kim, being a patient with the one who's fighting the illness or being a caregiver for the patient who's fighting the illness? I, th- I think there's two different aspects. I think um, being the patient is difficult because uh, it's, it's hard to feel like you're taking people's time and energy to focus on you when there's so much more in life and, and kind of feel bad that um, you're needing that care, yeah. right? So there's that. And then being on the other end of it, uh, all I wanted to do was take my husband's pain away. You know, to I wanted to be the patient. I wanted to be in his shoes so that he didn't have to go through, which I'm sure with your sister, you probably felt the same way. Yeah. And so that part was hard. Um, the caretaking itself, I would have done anything in the world for that man. I mean, the, you know, his, his feet, and ankles swelled up um, as time went by. And I would for hours sit and rub his feet and rub his ankles and try to get some of the fluid out for him. And um, I would have done that 24 seven or whatever he wanted and make whatever he wanted to eat or, you know, get it from the store, or, you know, anything in the world, whatever he wanted, I would have done in a, in a heartbeat. Um, but watching him have to go through it, uh, much harder than going through it myself for sure. Yeah. If you could hold on to one memory of Steve, what would it be? (laughs) There are so many, you know, what's kind of interesting about that question, Andrea, is it took me a long time to have any memories beyond the six weeks after he passed away. Really? I was I was stuck in that six weeks for a long time. Yeah. I uh, lost my mom years before that and found the same thing with her that I had a hard time um, remembering anything that that wasn't during the time when she passed away, but then experienced it with Steve and was so happy when the memories came back again. And I was able to think of something beyond beyond it. And uh, one of of the things that I miss 
a lot about Steve is, like I said earlier, I, I was the mouth, you know, I was the mouth in the <laughs> for sure. And, um, and there would be times that he would just look at me and kind of shake his head and go, Kim, you know, whatever, like he kept me in line. <laughs> he, he knew what line I should never cross over. And, you know, he was, he was the, the stabilizer, you know, he was um, the, the filter for me that I no longer have. So there's no more filter. But uh, so I, 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 I didn't like it when he was alive, but I miss it now uh, for yeah. sure. Yeah. Oh, what is one thing you wish you had known at the very beginning? And I'll let you decide whether beginning of uh, breast cancer for you or pancreatic cancer for Steve. You know, part of me would like to say that I'd like to know that it was going to be so quick, mm. but, but really I think it'd be hard to know. I mean, you, I'm, I'm curious what you think with your sister. Um, I think it would be hard. It would have been harder to know that this is how much time you have maybe. Uh, so um, there are things though, for sure that I wish I would have known. I wish I would have known more about the disease and what it was doing to him internally, what it would do to him internally, like what to look for, what, what signs to look for for him uh, that that maybe I could have been on top of better so that that Saturday night wouldn't have been so miserable for him and that Sunday morning wouldn't have been so miserable for him. Um, I experienced something that I thought was really interesting with Steve in that even though he took his last breath so quickly and, and that happened so quickly, I really felt like it was a process losing him. There were times during the six weeks, especially toward the end of the six weeks that I would look into his eyes and he just was not even there wide awake and walking around and whatever, but he wasn't there. Yeah. And I don't know where he was, uh, but he sure wasn't there. And, uh, but then he'd come back after a while, he'd come back mm -hmm. again. And so it felt like it was more of a transition than just a moment in time with him, with, with him leaving. Uh, so I kind of got glimpses of him not being there before he yeah. wasn't there. Wow. I always feel like deep down the patient knows, you know, even if they're not listening to their intuition, they know. I, I didn't realize until much later, but, um, my sister knew the exact moment when her, the cancer really took a turn for the worse, when it really got bad. She knew. She wrote about it, and she didn't tell me. Wow. And I think it was to protect me. I don't think she wanted me to know at all. And because had I known, we probably would have made some very different choices. Right. And she, and she didn't want me to know. But wow. she knew. And she was 15. She was 15. That uh, – that's pretty mature for 15. Yeah, she's uh she's an old soul. She always was. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. Yeah. yeah. Wow. So Kim, I can't wait to hear your answer to this question because I could just think of like five things off the top of my head. If you could only do one thing to improve healthcare in the US, what would it be and why? Another very interesting question. Uh, I think 
that our healthcare system, I think so many doctors get jaded easily and, and kind of cynical, like the experience that I had with the doctor yelling at me that this is not pancreatic cancer. That never, ever should have happened when my husband is lying there and he knows that there's cancer somewhere in his body and doesn't know where and what's going to happen with him. Uh, I should never have been yelled at by a doctor for no. asking if that part of the colon was by the pancreas. I mean, <laughs> what a silly thing to get yelled at over, right? I mean, how silly is that? But that shouldn't have happened. And I know that doctors, I mean, of course, you got to build up some sort of a skin, uh, thick skin when you have to deliver bad news and, and have to deal with things. But um, stay human, you know, stay, if all doctors could stay human, the oncologist, my husband's oncologist was amazing and so, so human and so, so caring. And he was absolutely wonderful. And so, so that tells me it's possible. Yeah, so I, I agree. Possible. I agree. Yeah. Uh, I don't think doctors, I mean, I've seen teeny tiny incremental improvements, but I don't think doctors get any kind of training on how to, how to talk about dying, how to, if you're going to go into oncology, realize that you can't save every single patient. It's just not, that's not realistic. So, um, yeah, I just, yeah, yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. That, um, learning about talking about dying and learning about business, I think are two things maybe lacking and, in, uh, in right. medical school, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. You know, what's interesting though, too, is um, my youngest, Noah, when all this was happening, he was, he had been in the Navy and then he was uh, using the GI Bill to do his undergrad. Nice. And, um, so thank you everyone for paying for my son's college. <laughs> I appreciate that very, very much. Well deserved. Well deserved. <laughs> this country. Yeah. And so he was um, microbiology or whatever his undergrad was with the idea of going on to medicine and uh, being an MD. And because of my diagnosis and then my husband's diagnosis, he decided instead to pursue a PhD. And so he went to UT Southwestern and got his PhD as a cancer biologist, uh, cancer researcher. And um, he's been uh, in, um, had lots of articles. He's, he's been- uh, Is he still he, there? Because they're one of the top research institutions in the country. It, yes, he is still there. And what's really interesting is, you know, getting a PhD, he, every door was open to him. He could go wherever he wanted. Everybody made him an offer. And he decided on UT Southwestern under, and you work in somebody's lab, you know, and you have to discover something that's never been discovered before. It's got to be significant enough that, that um, there are articles written about it, right. And in important journals and, um, and that's how you get a PhD. And so he got to the lab and didn't even realize, but the two focuses of the lab were pancreatic and breast cancer. No. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? Oh yeah. my gosh. I just got chills. Yeah. Really? Yes. And then the discoveries that he made have been very significant, including how to uh, do research. And he figured out some way to do research faster, do do some something, I don't know, it's all over my head, but 
Um, so much though that Harvard flew him out a couple times to teach his procedure in their labs and flew him to Germany to some sister university there or whatever to teach wow. over there. And yeah, so he has this some something that now labs are using. And so uh, so he's made and then he decided that uh, to get his MD because in order to have contact with patients instead yeah. of relying on an MD to do it all, yeah, to, to be do your research, yeah. you can yourself. So yeah, so he's actually uh, near the end of his third year in med school right now at still wow. at UC Southwestern. Yeah. Ah, yeah. Fantastic. You must be so proud. I am so proud. And breast cancer was his, his thing. And uh, I mean, he made some pretty significant um, strides. So um, I, I'm happy that that he's taken what was crummy and, and making good out of it for sure. Yeah. All right. Are you ready for the Thriver rapid fire? I'm ready for anything you have for me. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't doubt that at all, <laughs> especially what you've been through. Beach, desert, or mountains? Beach. Beach Boys, Beatles, or Rolling Stones? Beach Boys. What is one word that best describes you? Feisty. <laughs> Before you die, what is the last song you want to hear? All you need is love. The last meal you want to eat? Steak and shake. Crystal <laughs> <laughs> <Frisco> burger. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I'm just saying, wait, I'm, I'm like, I want the food that's bad for me. I mean, that's what <laughs> that's I right. want. And the last person or people you will see? My kids and grandkids and my best friend, Sheila. And the last words you will speak? I love you all. And aside from Cancer You, what is one resource you would recommend for cancer patients and caregivers? And also please tell people how to get in touch with you. Well, if you're going through breast cancer, uh, I hate to kind of self-promote, but my book, Cry Until You Laugh. Um, I think I wish I had a book like that when I was diagnosed um, to that talks about what you really go through, uh, but yet uh, adds some, some humor. And, and how can people find the book? On Amazon, okay. uh, any bookseller, Cry Until You Laugh, Kim Sorrell, okay. um, I think is a great resource. Um, you are a great resource. Your show, <laughs> I highly recommend. I've listened to episodes and uh, the information that you get from people is outstanding. And oh, so thank you. you, you're an incredible resource. Thank you. And how can people get in touch with you? Kim Sorrell, my last name has way too many letters. <laughs> two E's, two L's, but I am literally the only Kim Sorrell spelled this way in the entire world. Perfect. So I love it. Yeah, so it's S-O-R-R-E-L-L-E. And so KimSorrell.com is my website. Uh, I am on Facebook. I'm on Instagram. I'm on TikTok, Twitter, any of the social platforms. Um, Kim at KimSorrell.com is my email address. I love to hear from people. Um, I've written another book uh, that my husband uh, led me to write about um, love, about the reality of love and, and um, offering WWLD wristbands, what would love do? 
<laughs> yeah, on my website and I uh, would love to send anybody one for free. If you uh, want to get in touch with me, I'd love to send one out to you. So I'm, I'm pretty easy to find, hopefully pretty easy to find. I love it. So we'll put that in the uh, workshop notes and also in the show notes for the podcast episode. Kim, thank you so much for coming on today and sharing your story and also sharing Steve's story. Yeah. Well, Andrea, thank you for giving me the platform to do that. It, I love talking about my husband. He was, you can he was tell. incredible. Yeah. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you for listening to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. If you like our podcast, give us a five-star rating and review and tell your friends about us. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening right now. If you want to share your cancer journey with the world and be a guest on our podcast, go to our website, cancer.university. That's cancer.university. And hit the contact button or click the contact link in the show notes. You've been listening to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. Real people, true stories.